When they were nearing Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany on Mount Olives, he sent off two of the disciples with instructions. Go to the village across from you. As soon as you enter, you'll find a colt tethered, one that has never yet been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Say, the master needs him and will return him right away. They went and found a colt tied to a door on the street corner and untied it. Some of those standing there said, what are you doing untying that colt? The disciples replied exactly as Jesus had instructed them, and the people let them alone. They brought the colt to Jesus, spread their coats on it, and he mounted. The people gave him a wonderful welcome, some throwing their coats on the street, others spreading out rushes they had cut in the fields, running ahead and following after. They were calling out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in God's name. Blessed the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He entered Jerusalem. Then he entered the temple. He looked around, taking it all in. But by now it was late, so he went back to Bethany with the twelve. So this morning, I, uh, well, it actually was kind of, in, this morning is actually inspired a little bit by Friday Youth, um, which Melinda does a fantastic job. So your youth and kids are in great hands. Melinda and her, and her team, they're wonderful. Um, but it, it struck me how kids forget things. So this, this, this story was like slated, you know, I love going through the narrative, as you guys know, or don't know, I just love how the stories build and roll and roll and they, they interact with each other and you kind of get to know more and more as the narrative grows. Well, this was like supposed to be kind of Palm Sundays, um, uh, Jesus entering the, in the, the cult, right? And then on Friday, we, my kids and I went to youth and uh, Melinda asked, uh, do you remember the story of Daniel? Daniel in the lion's den. And the kid's like, oh yeah, for sure. I remember Daniel in the lion's den. Well, it's like, well, t- tell me about it. Tell me what happens in the Daniel's lion's den. And then one, one child says, oh, that's when um, his brothers uh, were jealous of his coat and they threw him into a pit. And then another was like, yeah. And then, I can't remember because all this like, uh, yeah, and then they, they uh, then there was like the fire, and like Jesus showed up, and the, then the other ones were in the fire too, and they didn't get hurt, and then uh, of course me being who I am, I was like, yeah, and there's a whale, and then the whale ate them all. Anyway, it was like this mashup of Old Testament stories uh, that really had nothing to do with Daniel, and it was really interesting. It's like, right, we've grown up with all these stories, right? We we remember, but then we get confused and we forget. And so, you know what? This is a really, really great time. I'm going to camp in a couple weeks. Our family won't be here for the next couple weeks. And it's like, so it's this kind of juncture point at the end of a semester. And I, I, as I've told you, I started doing this stuff with kids. And at the end of a semester, I would always do some sort of a review. Because it's really, really important to remember the stories behind so you get to know the stories ahead. And, I, and it struck me as I was thinking about the crowd that I just read about behind Jesus and following ahead of Jesus, or running ahead of Jesus, welcoming into Jerusalem. And so this morning, I just want you to imagine that you're in that crowd, that you're one of those people, that maybe you had seen Jesus before. Maybe you never have. Maybe this is the first time that you've seen him in in the flesh, in person. But you've heard about him. Maybe you had seen Jesus. Maybe you're one of the people who kind of like, marched along with him for all these months and years, and you've seen this stuff, you've known this guy. But what would it like to be in that crowd? 
Because this story is incredibly significant to the life of Jesus, to the story of Mark in particular, and the gospel itself. So in order to do that, I thought, well, we have to kind of go back. Mark is a brilliant storyteller. He is, he's a genius. And he has told us a very, very compelling story right from the beginning. And it starts off almost right away with Jesus' baptism. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to build a road out of stories, okay, so that we have a good visual. That you're in that crowd, you're witnessing Jesus coming into the city and all that means, and we're going to build up this story as we review it. So Jesus baptized. Can somebody tell me what was significant about the baptism of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark? What stands out to you? What do you remember about that story? Now, I didn't tell it here, but you may remember something. A couple of things happened that were very, very, very important. Starts his ministry. What else happens? Just shout it out. It's okay. The Holy Spirit, yes, the dove, sends down on Christ. There's one more thing. This is his son. This is, this is Jesus' introduction, that his cousin baptizes him. A dove comes down, the heavens open up, God's, spirit, God's voice speaks, and he starts his ministry. That is the beginning. Could I have somebody, would you want to lay this out over there for me? No? no? We're going to build a road. Yeah. It's just like, take it, just put it over there somewhere. Well, that's good. That's really far. Perfect. There we go. Starts way back there. there Jesus is baptized into the story, and his story starts. Now, in the beginning, people in the crowd wouldn't really much think much of that because they, I don't know that they heard the voice of God. John did for sure. Other people were baptized with Jesus. He wasn't the only one. So this is this beginning that's kind of, we know that it starts really big, but the people around don't necessarily. But then Jesus becomes known as a teacher, and he becomes known as this really wise speaker. And then he gets known as this kind of this pseudo-rabbi because he starts to call his disciples. Who are the first disciples that Jesus calls in Mark? Who can remember? We got a couple of them sitting in this room. Peter. Peter. Yes, Peter and Andrew. And then he immediately goes and finds James and John. So two sets of brothers, two fishermen. On the side of the shore, he calls them out. This is wild. They drop their nets and they follow. They've, Jesus has already made such an impression on these guys that they, they leave their livelihoods to take on this rabbi and become his disciple. It's a pretty significant event. What's interesting about that is though these guys are just regular old guys. They're just workers. They're not educated. They're not necessarily smart. They're not the people you necessarily choose to be a rabbi or to be a follower of a rabbi. But there they are. Who'd like to lay that one? You want to lay that one out beside that one? You're going to be moving a lot, just so you know. So he has some disciples. He's got a following. He's a teacher. He's getting known as a teacher. But then he does something really wild. What is the first miracle in Mark? Not Jesus' first chronological miracle, necessarily, but Mark specifically, because Mark is telling a specific kind of story. Who can remember? I didn't teach this to you guys, so you have to know off your own memory. No, that's John. That's Jesus' first miracle, is water to wine. But in Mark, that's not his first demonstration of power. Anybody remember? No. 
No. This is inter- this is good. Because Mark's trying to tell us a very specific thing about Jesus. He casts out a demon-possessed man, I believe in the synagogue. That's his first display of power in Mark, is he casts out evil. The man is in the synagogue, and Jesus comes in to do some teaching, and the guy freaks out, and Jesus is out of here. So a building like this, there was kind of a demon lurking around amongst the people, and it was Jesus' presence that the demon recognized right off the bat there's something different about this guy, Jesus. The demon's agitated, and Jesus throws him out, throws the power out of this guy. Do you want to put that one there? So Jesus casts out evil. Then what does Jesus do? He starts to do some wild things. He heals the leper. So not only is it, you can stay right there. You can, there you go. You're busy. You're going to be moving. He heals the leper. He goes outside of the village to where the people, the, the, the lepers and the sick and the disease are, the people that no one wants to really associate with, and he does something there. What does he do? Touches the leper. Oh, we don't do that. Jesus does. And then Jesus does something wild, very, very crazy. Something that really starts to, to change his narrative. This is interesting. He's, he's been baptized. He's a good teacher. He has a following. His power over the demonic. He even has the power to heal. That's really cool. Maybe he's a prophet, people think. That's pretty wild. But then he does something else that's totally off the charts. Who can remember? Who said that? Way in the back. Way in the, way in the back. Young man in the back. He forgave sins. So the paraplegic comes in. This is one of the best stories of Mark. They scratch through the roof, and they, I think it's Peter's house. You know, these guys are so desperate to get to Jesus. This crowd has gotten so big. They break through the roof and lower this guy down into a packed room where there's no room for him to be anyway. And Jesus forgives his sins. Wild. That's crazy. Didn't just heal him. He forgave sins. Who can forgive sins? Shout it out. God. So very, very early, you want to put that one up there? Very early in Mark. Very, very early, like two chapters in, Jesus has shown that he has power over the demonic, over the dark forces. He has power over physical nature, and he has power over sin. But that starts to change the story because then Jesus has made some enemies. The Pharisees hear that and they say, no, 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 no. There's one person who can forgive sins, and it's not a person. It's God the Father so Jesus, that, that, that the beginning, the plot started to, to kind of turn on Jesus. This thing started to get a little, bit, a little bit nasty and gross, and it got worse and worse and worse. We're going to fly now because we've got to keep, we've got a motor here. This is, Mark is a big story. He goes on to heal the man with the withered hand. Now, in this story in particular, the Pharisees, they recognize who Jesus is, and they want to trap him, so they set him up. If you can remember that story, they try to, they try to catch him to breaking, breaking Sabbath rules. And Jesus outsmarts them, and he heals the man with the withered hand, and breaks Sabbath, and can't be pinned down. And then Jesus, as his, as his following is growing, he actually narrows down uh, his disciples down to 12. Now, the first person who lists all 12 disciples gets five points. I'm going to give you seven seconds. I can never remember them, just so you know. He chooses the 12, but, but what kind of 12 are they? Are they the educated elite? No. 
Are they the, the militaristic powerful? No. Are they even that smart? No. These are just normal people. Actually kind of lower class people that Jesus chooses to become his closest followers. And that was a designation that then now these guys are actually in tow with him wherever he goes, whatever happens. They're going to emulate him. They're going to be like him. And he's going to show them how to be in the world. So he chooses 12. Do you want, do you want someone else to help you? Maybe Judah? Can you come? Okay, Judah, you come on up. And then right after he chooses the 12, yeah, this is great. We've got one, two. That's awesome. You can actually start to like you make a little, you can start to snake it a little bit too if you want. He sets up a new family. This, this story was really important because his own mother comes to find him because at this time, Jesus' fame and popularity had grown and people are like, you know what, Jesus, you're, you're pushing it a little too hard. You're a little too radical. And his own family came to say, Jesus, you need to come home. You're too wild. You're causing too much trouble. Your claims are too radical. Come on back. Come home with us, Jesus. And Jesus says to his own mom, no. I have a new family, those who do the will of the Father. These are my brothers and sisters. Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Those who do God's will. And he denies hospitality to his own mother. Huge deal. And then Jesus goes on. Mark breaks for a little bit and tells us all kinds of parables and stories. And he's always speaking in stories. And so at this point in the narrative, we have this brilliant prophet who's starting at the, the foundational level, starting to, to shake the world and to shake how people perceive him and perceive the, kind of the, 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 the will of God in the world. But it's not quite over yet. Jesus starts to expand the paradigm. In the next some chapters of Mark, Jesus blows the roof off the, 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 the building here by calming the storm with only his words. That he's on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples are afraid they're going to die and the boat's about to, to sink and Jesus just stands up and he says, peace be still, and the water's calm. And the disciples at this point, even though they've seen all these amazing things, they're like, who is this guy? The wind and the waves obey him. And these, these are the kind of like, we are kind of known as like the power stories. We read from this one this morning, that right after that, right when they land on shore, he's greeted by a madman filled with a legion of demons, and Jesus casts out 5,000 demons from this guy, and they herd into the pigs, and it's a really amazing story. And then Jesus, after that, he, they sail right back and they land on shore and they're greeted by another crowd that's just all around them and he's trying to work through this crowd and this woman with an issue of blood comes up and touches his garment and then she's healed by her faith. But he's actually trying to get to another person, Jairus' daughter who had died. And then he goes into their house and then he raises the little girl from death. And in a very short amount of time, Jesus says, I have power over the storm, over nature. I have power over not just one demon, but a multitude of demons. And I have power over death itself. So if you can imagine that you're one of those disciples watching all this stuff. If you were Peter on the inner, inner circle, and this is what you had seen. Just imagine your perspective on life. How it is totally blown open wide. Well, then he sends out his 12. He says, you know what? You're going to do what I do out into the world. And he sends the 12 on, on a little bit of a mission. 
And they come back and they say, Jesus, we did it just like you. And Jesus says, of course you did. So you can put that one down there. Now the disciples are actually taking on kind of what Jesus is doing. They're being Jesus in the world, which was the whole point. And then, not only that, he sends this giant crowd, follows him into the wilderness where he feeds 5,000 plus people. Probably more like 20,000 people in the wilderness. You can lay that one down. And so Jesus is now starting to, to, to paint this really beautiful, elaborate picture of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. That like Yahweh in the desert, God is going to provide for his people. And that crowd was filled with Jews, filled with Israelites, who would have known these stories, and they would have seen, oh my, the prophet has come. And the messianic expectation of Christ was starting to really, really grow. And at this point in Mark, Jesus really couldn't go anywhere without a crowd of people following him, and a crowd of people de putting, placing demands on him. Well, this is one of the most obscure and beautiful, I think misunderstood stories in Mark. After the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sends the disciples back in the boats, and they go out in the boat, and they're stuck in the middle because there's kind of a medium storm. And it's too windy to sail, but it's too hard to row through, and they're struggling out in the middle of the water. They're, they're not at death's door. They're not afraid that they're going to die, but they are struggling for hours and hours. And Jesus leaves the mountaintop that he had just fed 20,000 people, and he walks down, and he walks across the water. Now, this is really interesting, and because Mark says that he actually passes by the boat. Jesus wasn't necessarily coming to walk into the boat. Mark says that he's passing by the boat. Would anybody want to take a guess as to what that might mean? If you can go back and back and back to the Old Testament, to a mountaintop experience that another guy, his name rhymes with Plosis. <laughs> what, what happened with Moses on, the, on Mount Sinai? God passed by Moses. And I think what Mark is telling us, definitively to his disciples, is you're not just dealing with a prophet. You're not just dealing with a guy who has power. You're not just dealing with a guy who can heal and forgive. You're dealing with God himself. And he's going to pass. He passes by the disciples, only to then come into the boat and help them roar. Uh, roar or paddle. What do you call it? Anyway, so you can put that one there. Then Jesus heals the deaf and mute man. That's a great one. We, we just did that one a few weeks ago. Then he starts to change his perspective that he's not just here for the Jews and the Israelites. That this God, this spirit of God who passes by his disciples, who's providing in the wilderness for the Jews, it's not just for the Israelites, actually. It's for the whole world. And this is where Jesus again starts to really break and crack the foundations and the paradigms of what people are expecting of him. Because now he goes into the wilderness and he feeds 4,000 plus people. But what was significant about this story? Do you remember? Who was in that crowd? Where were they when they ate? Do you remember? This is why we're doing this. No offense. Because it's so good. Where were they? Were they in Israel proper? 
Who was with the crowd? It was basically half Israelite and half Gentile. Gentile. This is, they were in the Decapolis. They were in the Decapolis region, the city of the ten towns, which is full of pagans. So Jesus has taken this provision out of Israel and he says, now I'm going to feed the whole world. And so there's a mix of Jews and Gentiles eating at this feast. You can put that one there. Juicer, thanks, buddy. Then Jesus heals the blind in the Decapolis again. You can put that one down. Look at this. Look at this snake he wrote. This is awesome. And then, as if there hasn't been enough confirmation, Jesus goes on the top of a mountain and he meets who? He's got his close disciples with him. Who comes to greet him on the top of the mountain? Elijah, Moses, Law, and the prophets. The culmination, the pinnacle of Israel's history are standing left and right of Jesus as Jesus is bathed in radiant white light. And let's pause for a second because this is kind of a, kind of a bookending part of Mark. Mark repeats something that we heard right in the beginning. Who speaks on the top of this mountain? Jesus bathed in white, Elijah and Moses beside him. Something else happens. It's really, really important. Someone said it over here earlier about Jesus' baptism. Who speaks? Who? God. Good job, Judah. God speaks. And what does God say? It's not a trick. I see a lot of like scared faces, like this is like an exam. No one's, no one's failing. It is the end of the school year though, so be careful. Mark tells us that God says almost the exact same thing that he says at Jesus' baptism. This is my son, chosen, my chosen son. That's powerful. You want to put that one down? Jesus comes down the mountain. And then Jesus, I think, starts to change. We read this one this morning, where he's coming, he's, he's greeted by more fighting, more disciples, more arguing, and a whole lot of lack of faith. And Jesus doesn't meet his disciples with, I don't think, a lot of kindness and empathy. He's frustrated because they lack faith. They don't see what's going on. And so this, this boy is uh, possessed, and Jesus heals this boy, and he says to the dad, you know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's, it's, this kingdom is all about faith. And the dad replies, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. One of my favorite passages of Mark. So you could put that one down there. And this is where the story of Mark really starts to, to change. And this is my favorite story of Mark, I believe, is when Jesus calls the children to him. And he's flipping, flipping the expectations of the world totally on his head. And I think he says, if you can't come with your imagination, with a sense of playfulness, and you can't be a part of a story, then you actually can't be a part of the kingdom of God because it's not about the things that we see. Jesus is saying it's not about this, this, the great expectations of kingdom power and wealth and, and military might. It's, it's about something more. It's about this invisible kingdom of God that we're being invited into. And children, like these ones right here, they, they interact in that world seamlessly. And you need to be like, like them. So you can place that one right there, Jutzer. And while he's doing all this, He's already done it a couple times in these stories, but he, t he tells his disciples for the third time in a row exactly what's going to happen to him. Is that he's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to get killed. And after three days, he's going to come back 
from death. And his disciples, do they understand what he's saying? No. Do they get it? They do not. But though Jesus tries three times, you can place that one right there, three times he says, I'm going to die. And while he's predicting his death, his disciples actually say, hey, Jesus, when you get to Jerusalem, can I sit on your right? My brother, can we, can we sit on your right and your left? Can we be in your highest place of honor? And Jesus says, you don't understand what you're asking for because you're not listening to me, that I'm actually going to Jerusalem to die. And the cup I'm about to drink, you can't drink. One day you will, Jesus says. And so then he comes into Jericho. It was what we did last week. And he comes into the city of Jericho and he's greeted by a blind man. And the blind man calls out, Son of David. You can put that one there, Jutzer. Thanks. Can we give a hand to these kids? That was really great. Really helpful. Really well done. And good job for all of you. Review is hard. It's hard. But why it's important is because when we come to the scriptures and we, we open up our Bible, we open up um, your favorite book, those books, those characters, those stories, they're built on a long, long train or chain of stories and characters. And it's all pushing forward. And it's all building on itself. And so it's really hard to take one story out of Mark and say, well, that story means this. If you don't start at the beginning to see, well, that story means this in the context of all of this. It's really important that Mark tells us twice, in two pivotal moments, that Jesus is God's son, that the heavens part and God's audible voice comes down and speaks. That's really important for Mark, and it's really important because that's what he did in the Old Testament. And all these stories, you have to imagine like a, like a golden thread, they're just being woven together to make a really, really, really compelling case that Jesus is who he says he is, and yet, along this storyline, even to the very point of Jericho, if you imagine then that Jesus heals this blind man in Jericho, and the blind guy who can't see actually sees Jesus for who he is, that he is the son of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel, but not in the way that his disciples are expecting. And so now we come back to this scene. If you remember Jericho, kind of how it's in a low-lying valley land, and it's a really beautiful city. It's like an oasis right beside kind of the Dead Sea. But if you know the, the, the geography of ancient Israel is that it's really well below sea level. And Jerusalem's actually quite high above sea level. And they have to climb up this 28-kilometer road to get to Jerusalem. And it's a treacherous, windy, awful road. And this is the last real trek that Jesus will make before he dies. His disciples don't know that. Jesus does. And so they make their way up. And as they're coming into Jerusalem, and they can see they've gone through that treacherous road, and they've made their way, and they can see Jerusalem kind of off in the distance. And, and the way Jerusalem was, was set, it would have like shone. Some people think that the temple was so bright, it kind of like would have emulated light off of it. That anywhere you were in the vicinity, you could see the temple. God's temple in the, in the capital. And as they approach it and they come close to the city, it's Passover time. They're not the only people there. There's hundreds of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people 
migrating, pilgrimaging to Jerusalem for Passover. And Jesus says, bring me that colt. And the disciples do it. And, and then Jesus gets on to the colt. Christy talked about this a few weeks ago. That was really significant. What did that mean? What was, this, what was that a symbol of? Why didn't Jesus just walk into the city? Why did he choose a colt? Who knows? King. King rides a colt. This is a symbol of a king coming into the city. A colt that had never been ridden. This is very, very symbolic. And everybody who would have seen Jesus on the back of this colt would have thought, my goodness, it's happening. It's finally happening. Hundreds of years of waiting. This is where some of our story goes full circle with Daniel in captivity. That the, the, the Israelites had been subjugated by foreign kings and, and queens for hundreds of years. And the last 400 years pre-Christ were brutal. The last 150 years before Jesus were awful. The Greeks and the Romans were terrible to the Jews. And there was reason for them to be angry. And there was a lot of reason for them to be anxious and anticipate liberation. Jesus, Jesus wasn't the first revolutionary to try and start a revolution. There were others before him. And they all met the same fate. Other Jews who tried to liberate Israel from the grasp of foreign rule. But no one was ever like Jesus. No one could, had the power over dark forces. No one had the power over nature. No one had the power to raise the dead. No one's ever spoke like Jesus. No one ever taught like Jesus. No one ever had crowds like Jesus. No one could heal the blind and the deaf and the mute and feed the multitudes with nothing. No one had ever made the claim that they could forgive sins. And yet here Jesus is, asking for the colt, mounting this colt, and beginning his journey into the city of Jerusalem. Imagine if you were Peter. Not these Peters. Andrew, John, James. And you had seen all of this with your own eyes for almost three years. Imagine how you would feel. It's happening. Yes, people absolutely would grab their palm branches and lay them down on the ground and take off their coats and say, yes, the king has finally come. And not just any king, it's Jesus of Nazareth. This guy is incredible. And he's marching on the capital. Amazing. Were they expecting what was going to happen next? No. They thought the general prophet, warrior poet king would come in, dethrone the false king, and reinsert reinsert Israel's independence in the world. The son of David would take the throne again. Certainly not 
a week later, would they expect this guy to be on a cross, dead? Nobody saw that coming. Despite all the warnings Jesus gave them, despite the explicit details of what Jesus said would happen, nobody saw that coming. And in his final act of really destroying expectations, Jesus goes willingly to his death as the final sacrifice to end all sacrifices on a tree. Abandoned by the crowd. Left by his friends. No one there save for a couple people to take his body down. And the movement, like so many other movements, ended in utter disappointment. No. That's not what Mark tells us. Jesus defies expectations because he doesn't stay in the grave. He tells us what happens. He doesn't stay in the grave. He comes back out victorious, triumphant, bursting out of the grave, conquering death, and bringing all death with him because he's the holder of key, of, the, of death and Hades. He, he not only can conquer death on earth, he actually defeats death itself. But that's for another story. That's for another day. Because this morning what I wanted to do is review and actually pause at that scene to re-invite you back to that scene where Jesus is entering into the city and all these people who had seen him, thousands of people lining up to greet him, with their expectations on him. And I confess my own conviction. What do I expect from that man? What do I expect him to do for me? And am I ready for what he's actually about? Am I ready for who he actually is? I think our, not this church, I'm going to go off script for two seconds before I get in trouble. And there's Bob, so joyfully looking at me. I can't speak to the whole Christian church, but I can speak to my own experience. That I think in my own life, my own self included, my own upbringing, we've expected a lot from Jesus to act as a political warrior to act as a vending machine for wealth, to be a person of power and prestige. I have put a lot of expectations on that man that he was never going to fulfill, and they're my own. That's not what he is about. And it perplexes me how I still can get trapped, and our churches can still get trapped in this in this power lock that we want Jesus to be this beacon of power and control in the world and yet in this story seven days later he goes and willingly dies not raising a finger not raising his voice and the God of all power empties himself of all power and that is the true power of the gospel and so this morning we have some, some stuff at the back table, some paper, and um, 
markers and stuff. And I wanted you, you're invited, you don't have to do this. But just take a moment and reflect. Let's have a quiet moment of prayer. And you can grab a blank piece of paper. And you can write, you can finish, you can continue this chain by, by sharing a story of something that Jesus has done for you. Some impactful thing. And you can add on to this, to this beautiful road. Or you can lay down your expectations right here with the palm branch. And Jen kind of said it earlier, and almost an act of repentance. Jesus, I'm sorry that I expected you to be this. Help me to have courage to accept you for who you are and to be where you are and to move where you're moving and to work as you're working. And that's my invitation to you as we kind of close up the review and we pause at this moment. Not to lay down our, our palm branches in you know, this triumphant entry of this general king, but actually to lay down our expectations of Christ and accept him as who he is. So um, maybe Brian, you could just pick away because I'm throwing you on the spot. Just a nice, nice song, just for a few minutes. And if nobody moves, it's totally fine too. Um, but that'll be an invitation to you. And uh, we'll, just, we'll just pray before we do that. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you so much uh, for your just absolutely paradigm-breaking, meteoric impact on the world. That these stories that Mark tells aren't stories made up from his imagination. They're not figments of myth. They're not just a bunch of, of fictionalized events that he's woven together, but it's actually an account of your presence as a human being on the physical earth. And Jesus, we thank you that time and time and time again, you recategorized uh, your purpose. You recategorize what it meant and what it means to be a human being, what it means to be loved by God, what it means to be in a, in a kingdom of community and love and forgiveness. We thank you that you followed that through right to the very end and that you and now even invite us to be a participant in that kingdom. And so Jesus, may we come now as led by your spirit to lay down our expectations of you, that that we, we bring our confessions to you of who we want you to be. And we ask you to have the courage to accept who you are and all that comes with it. And that we may be willing to follow you where you lead us and willing to follow where you take us and to work where you're working and to be where you are. And Jesus, I thank you for this day in your name. Amen.